Welcome to uh, this week's edition of the Legal Tech uh, Roundtable, Legal Tech Journalist Roundtable. We've uh, been off for a week, so we've got a lot to talk about, and we have a special guest joining us today to fill us in on some of the some of the big news of the week. Uh, I am Bob Ambrosi. I write the blog Law Sites and have the podcast Law Next. And our other panelists this week are Nikki Black. You want to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Nikki Black. I am the legal technology evangelist for my case practice management software. I write legal technology columns for um, Above the Law, ABA Journal, The Daily Record, and other outlets. And I like to talk about. So that's why I'm here today. <laughs> and uh, Joe Patrice. Hi, uh, Joe Patrice. I'm uh, editor at Above the Law. I am. Uh, you know, I, I also have the podcast Thinking Like a Lawyer, uh, which uh, is always fun, a weekly fun roundup of legal news. And uh, I think Nikki Black owes me 10 bucks. That's what I think. <laughs> the news. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Victoria. Hey, I also think that Nikki owes me $10 as well. <laughs> but, I'm, but I'm also a reporter for Legal Tech News, which is owned by ALM, where I cover the law and the intersection of technology and the legal system. Victor. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Victor Lee. I am the assistant managing editor for the ABA Journal. I uh, cover the business of law and technology for the, uh, for the journal. And like I said, my usual disclaimer is I don't speak for the journal or the ABA. And if Nikki Black gives me 10 bucks, then I don't speak for her either. <laughs> <laughs> but you do speak for my case, right? <laughs> if she gives me 10 bucks, sure. <laughs> All right. And Zach. Hey everybody, I'm Zach Warren. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Legal Tech News, and I've gotten jealous seeing a few other people with glasses of wine and such on here, so I figured a holiday weekend, so this would be the right time for Dogfish Pumpkin Definitely. Ale while we're on here. So cheers and have a happy Labor Day weekend to everybody. That's like a Gen Z pumpkin spice latte. Oh, 100%. Yeah, somebody asked me the other day, so are you a pumpkin spice latte person? I'm like, I'm not, but only because I'm not a coffee drinker. I actually right. <laughs> so I'm all for it. Yeah, and I, and I forgot to tell uh, Ed Walters that it's uh, strictly BYOB in this event. We're, we're not serving here. but uh, And we're joined also by Ed Walters. Uh, and uh, Ed, we'll get to you in just, we'll get to you in just a moment. Uh, and uh, but I wanted to uh, just remind uh, anybody who's new to uh, our audience here to uh, go ahead and participate in the chat. Not that I have to tell you that, but uh, if you have uh, any questions or comments or topics you want to throw in the ring here, go ahead and uh, and do that. Uh, Molly McDonough is not going to be with us today, nor is Caroline Caroline Hill, who's apparently spending an actual Friday night out in the UK rather than sitting around waiting for us. So. Uh, so uh, we are we do have a guest this week and our guest is Ed Walters. Ed, how are you doing? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, Ed is the, of course, I think everybody in this audience knows is the co-founder and CEO of Fastcase. And Fastcase had some news this week. So Ed, why don't you give us the, uh, the, uh, sh the uh, short version uh, of the news and we can, then we can all talk about it a little bit. Uh, the short version is that uh, the best legal technology research and analytics company in America that is not called Fastcase, uh, Judicata, is now joining the Fastcase team. We're thrilled about it. Um, 
the, the technology that Judicata uh, has built for California law. Uh, we get to together extend to all 50 states. Thrilled about it. I just got an angry test from, a text from Andrew Arruda Ross saying, what do you mean the best? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, no, you know, I, I, to me, I wrote about it and I, I, think, it's, I think it's really cool. Uh, I, I, I've known the Judicata folks for a long time. Well, not that long because they were in stealth mode for a long time, but pretty much once they came out of stealth, uh, I, I got to know them, um, Itai Garari in particular, and uh, they've got a really cool product. And uh, I think it's great that, that uh, this has happened and they're going to be able to hopefully move that product, uh, you know, beyond California where they've been uh, operating so far, so. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a couple of very uh, tangible things. This isn't like ethereal legal tech. The kinds of things we're talking about are taking their citator technology, which is really, I, I think, the potential to be the best citator in the world. Um, it's already the best for California and to extend that to other states, having the most powerful citator, more powerful even than legacy publishers, Super great for fast case subscribers, so we're thrilled about that. Um, Judicata has this great ability to figure out algorithmically what cases are about, what the cause of action are, who wins or who loses, how much is at stake. And that's gonna be very powerful in fast case. Show me cases that are worth uh, between X and Y, show me cases in this kind of cause of action, but also really powerful in docket alone, a database of 420 plus million briefs, pleadings, and motions. And so it's these very like, you know, nuts and bolts, blocking and tackling research tasks that we're excited about. And then last analytics, it's something we're really pushing hard against with DocAlarm right now. The Judicata team has some really great insights there. I, I just think it's gonna be the industry best analytics package inside of FastCase as well. So 900,000 lawyers have access to FastCase and they're about to get a very big upgrade in the FastCase offering. That's great. So does anybody have uh, comments, questions? I mean, I, I want to know, is, is that Cherry from the old uh, Pee Wee's Playhouse show sitting behind him? Like, oh. what, what, what's going on there? <laughs> this is Bad Lawbot. Uh, there we go. The, the world's first algorithmic citator, uh, which is about to get a big upgrade. I don't know if that quite makes him like the Terminator Bad Lawbot, you know? <laughs> Um, we'll have to upgrade him to Schwarzenegger or something when he can fully terminate bad law. I don't know, but uh, this is, it's a sort of a symbolic uh, guest visit, uh, you know, into your uh, podcast. Well, we're it's lucky you didn't wear your bad law bot pajamas today. That's, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, yeah, I got a question because uh, Victoria covered it for us yesterday and thank you very much for taking the time to speak with her as well. But uh, yeah, one thing that I know you guys talked about is just kind of the long-term plan of what this means for FastCase, not only growing illegal research, but also outside of legal research as well. So I was just wondering if you could expand upon that a little bit, what exactly you see FastCase looking like as a company, five, say sure. five years down the road. I don't think I would geek out quite this much with um, you know, most journalists, but because you guys are a little deeper in the tech, maybe I will here, I'm in the right room. Um, I think of this really as kind of a tiered offering, right? At the bottom tier, there is fetching. There is kind of traditional legal research, search, result, document, pull a document, read a document, right? 
above that tier, there is kind of analysis. Think of analysis like treatises that interpret the law. Think of it as form documents and document automation. Think of it as treatises that synthesize and explain the law, right? And we've been pushing from, I think, level one to level two for a little while. Uh, we have full court press, our own imprint that's doing treatises and stuff like that. Um, I think the top level is workflow. So when a lawyer does legal research, she's not doing research to, you know, enlighten herself. It's usually to write something, to create something, a brief, a pleading, a motion, um, a memo or something like that. And so I, I really do think that with, um, with some of the document automation tools we're building in next chapter, uh, and with some of the workflow tools we're now able to create with Judicata, uh, workflow will be like the next thing we're pushing against. So when, uh, when a lawyer wants to write a brief, she might open fast case to do the research, but be able to find like the next nearest neighbor for what's due next uh, for her case from docket alarm. Uh, we can say from docket alarms, giant database of, of uh, dockets, you know, a case like yours typically has 26 steps in the Northern District of California where you're filing. You're on step three. We've hard coded the court rules in, so we know step four is due in 21 days. We'll put it on your calendar automatically. And we'll pull the most successful pleading of the type that you're about to file from that jurisdiction for that cause of action and suggest it to you. Right, so we're not we're not going to have like a maybe like a, a robot write it for you, but we might be able to say, you know, just statistically, here's a good template. When I was at a big law firm, we never had a blank piece of paper. Right, I would always call from our document management system, our DMS, some brief or pleading or whatever as a starting point. But if you're in a small firm or a medium-sized firm, or you're practicing in a jurisdiction where you've never filed a paper before you start with a blank piece of paper or you start with the wrong template. And so just knowing what's next for every case and being able to say, here's the roadmap, you know, here's the map of what's going to happen in this case. And then here's what the most pragmatic next step is going to be. Use this as a, as a template or an exemplar. That really is workflow. And that's moving beyond uh, the kind of simple fetching operation to something that is more analytic and more, uh, ingrained into the workflow of people who are doing that kind of work. I have a um, comment and I, I want to preface it by saying I think that this is a super interesting acquisition. I think a lot of the acquisitions you've done recently are super interesting, but my comment has nothing to do with the acquisition. I just, it's more of a thank you. I just wanted to thank you for um, <laughs> mentioning that it's one of the reasons you're one of my favorite tech CEOs using um, the woman as a default in that example. And that's not the first time I've heard you do that. You know, a woman lawyer is a default who's researching. So it's completely off topic, but I just wanted to thank you for doing that. And it's not the first time you've done it. And I notice it every time you do, so. <laughs> well, you know, Nikki, more than half of uh, graduating law students are women. So I it makes know more that. sense. <laughs> uh, it makes more sense to have my uh, lawyer exemplar be a woman, perhaps. Well, I know that and you know that, but I, I feel like a lot of people don't seem to realize that. So it's, I like it when you do that because it emphasizes it. Awesome. And it acknowledges it, so thanks. <laughs> hey, Ed, I had a question about this. Um, so I know, you know, you guys do a lot of, you know, I mean, with regards to like bar associations and with um, 
uh, and whatnot, just offering fast case as a as a as a membership benefit. So um, so when you integrate Judicata into into your uh, into your existing platform, is that going to be available for those those uh, associations and whatnot, or or is this going to be like an added premium kind of service? Yeah, great question. Um, I think almost everything is going to be available as a part of that uh, bar association subscription. I could imagine maybe in the future developing some premium stuff uh, that we might want to carve out. Uh, so for example, today, Docket Alarm, uh, we also announced this, this week the release of the Mars release of Fastcase 7.6, the new version of Fastcase. Uh, every release is going to be named after a planet starting with Mercury and working its way out to Pluto, which is a planet. Um, so this was the Mars release, and uh, Mars is the first time that Docket Alarm uh, briefs, pleadings, and motions are integrated into Fastcase. And so uh, I would love to offer that for free, um, but I, I think the, the right way to do it is to offer it as a you know, modest, knowable subscription on top of what people get through the bar associations. Bar associations don't have to pay more for the, the member benefit, um, and people only pay for it if they need it. But so I think, again, like with that blank sheet of paper example, if you are getting ready to file a brief uh, or, a, or a pleading or something in a new court, being able to search that um, docket alarm briefs, pleadings, and motions database and pull up a really good template for something similar to what you're working on in the same jurisdiction, man, that's super powerful. Um, I think your clients would want that too. And so that is an additional subscription uh, but it's integrated, right? So you don't have to jump out into the docket alarm system anymore. You can search it inside of Fastcase just like you search everything else. Um, and I think you can view like three of them for free to see if it makes sense. But on the fourth one, like the New York Times, I guess, uh, you, you pay for that uh, brief or pleading or motion if you want. And this is a little bit of a follow-up on, on Zach's question, but I, I was when I, when I wrote about the deal this week, I, I dredged up this this quote uh, that Itai had said to me uh, back when I first wrote about him, which is talking about uh, judicata. He said, "At this point, it mops the floor with Westlaw and Lexis," which is a quote I absolutely love. Right. Uh, and and you know, it, it, talking to you for however many years now I've been talking to you, it, it seems to me you used to talk a lot more about Westlaw and Lexus. It's almost sort of like the kind of a goal for what you were aspiring to become, but I don't hear you talk about that so much anymore. And I'm wondering how you view uh, the legal research market right now as it stands and, and your place in it. And what's, what's the sort of the competitive market look like from where you sit? Man. You really know how to answer, ask a question. <laughs> um, you know, I think probably for a little while in the beginning of Netflix, they talked a lot about Blockbuster. Uh, and then they probably stopped. Um, so. Well, you know how to answer a question. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't want to be Westlaw and Lexus. Yeah. Um, there's a huge market for legal information. And there's legal information products that don't even exist yet. And that market is probably way bigger than the market for traditional uh, search result document fetching legal research that has been dominated by incumbents in this market forever. Um, I think we have an opportunity to reach that bigger market. So analytics products are a great example of this. Um, you know, what's, what's available today is relatively primitive. We feel like we're living in the future. We're really living in the past. And so, 
my aspiration is with a great team that we're building around us right now with, you know, Itai Garari and the Judicata team, Damian Real and Kevin Gustafson on the, on the fast case team, um, the, the kind of genius of Steve Eric and Nina Jack, my co-founder, Phil Rosenthal, who's an actual rocket scientist. Uh, we're going to push the envelope and create new products that don't even exist today. And what's great about this is it's, it's quiet, right? It's not something you really report on. Everybody is using FastCase right now. People run 6 million searches a week on FastCase. You know, 900,000 subscribers is the biggest subscriber base in the history of legal information ever, right? And so when we can roll these new products out, more people see them than ever. And more people get access to them for free than ever. And so we have the opportunity, for example, like with analytics, right, to have most lawyers experience analytics for the first time with hyperlinks and fast case. When you're reading a case and the party name is a hyperlink and you click it and get a dossier to see the seasonality of litigation against Amazon, that's really powerful. And nobody else can do that. You have to first have a gigantic user base of people who love, love, love what you do. Um, and God bless them. I mean, people love, love, love fast case. And we work really hard to, you know, earn that trust. Uh, but I, I think that that's the, the opportunity to create these new exciting products for legal information and then distribute them everywhere instantly uh, in a way that's transformative. Yeah, that's, that's great. There's a question here from uh, somebody in the audience, uh, which is, uh, uh, a great question because it's actually one of the questions I asked you the other day, which is what's the timeline for extending judicata system out to all 50 states and federal? My understanding is that their process for constructing the legal genome of a new jurisdiction is very labor intensive, which is one of the reasons that they've not been able to expand beyond California so far. Yeah, um, it's probably a little bit too early for me to give you delivery schedules, but I will say that um, the Judicata team has been working inside of FastCase already for a couple of months. Um, and I know that we're, we're kind of all like kids in a candy shop. Um, Michael Sander and the Docket Alarm team are so excited. Uh, I, I left them out before when I was talking about the congregation of geniuses, which you have to count. Um, Sonia Gupta, Michael uh, Sander, and the Docket Alarm team in there as well. Um, they're already integrating judicata into the briefs, pleadings, and motions database, right? So uh, I'm excited that we can start rolling these, th these things out right away um, in limited ways. Uh, it'll take a couple of years, I think, to put all of the things we have in the roadmap uh, out into practice. Um, but I, I think almost right away, you'll start to see some of them. Like Citator is a huge priority for us right now. I want to start stepping up the bad law about Citator inside of FastCase. You said it before, Bob. Uh, you know, when, when the Judicata team talks about mopping the floor with Westlaw and Lexus, they're not marketing hype type people, right? The reason they say that is they're really good at benchmarking. So they have um, all of these benchmark tests where they'll run the quality of search results against everybody else. And Judicata is the best. I mean, it really is. And compared to FastCase, which I think is very good, uh, Judicata is the best. And I know this because we can benchmark it, right? And so I want to have like benchmarkably best, most relevant search results. I want to have benchmarkably 
the best citator in the world. And when we do, you know, we're going to call in Gartner or somebody and have someone do a third party independent audit. Um, but when that audit comes in, it's going to say, Fastcase has the best, most accurate citator in the world. If you read, uh, th there's, there's really nerdy uh, articles about this, um, but they're awesome to people like me, that, where they actually say, like, let's measure the accuracy of citators. Right now, I think Shepherds and Keysight are kind of the gold standard, but their benchmark accuracy is like 68%, which is terrible. I mean, I'm horrified as a lawyer to think that you know, one in three times, I'm going to get that answer wrong. So it's hard to be better than the gold standard in this market, but it's not hard to beat 68%. So we're, we're going to really push against these things together and have benchmark, benchmarkably better results and demonstrably more accurate citators. One more question for you, Ed, uh, the question from uh, somebody listening. This might sound premature, but do you imagine marrying Judicata with a tool like GPT-3 at some time? <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. GPT-3, if I can put on my propeller hat for a second, my uh, Law of Robots professor hat, GPT-3 is designed to pick the next word. You know, it's kind of like when you're typing uh, an email in the in Gmail software and sort of says, you know, thank you very much at the end of it. It's just trying to predict what you're going to say next. So I like GPT-3. I think it's cool. I think there's some places where you might use it. Um, but I, I don't I don't necessarily see it being a good fit with uh, Judicata. If, if you were going to try to maybe write head notes or something, uh, GPT-3 might be a useful, um, you know, interesting application for that. Uh, the places where I'd like to use Judicata, though, is to really understand what cases are about and maybe what every citation is about. And when you can do that, then you can say not just this case has been overturned, but this case stands for six things and five of them are still good law, but the fourth one in here is bad law. You know, and so yeah. that's the kind of thing, the, the kind of nuance and sophistication and precision that we'd like to bring to the market with Judicata. Um, maybe not, not so much GPT-3. Now, if the question is, will we use you know, artificial intelligence applications with Judicata? There's a lot of things that uh, you know, Docket Alarm and Judicata use AI for, uh, not for everything. You know? And so uh, I have bad law here as kind of a joke, but I think that we are, we are not in the robot lawyer business. You know, I think that we will use the best tools available to do the kinds of things we're trying to do. Um, but I think at the end of the day, it's, it's not going to be uh, robot driven. It's going to be exquisite analytic and data driven. Well, if that marriage happens, we hope uh, you broadcast it live on Legal Tech, Legal Tech Week right here with all of us. Uh, and until then, um, so Ed, uh, Really appreciate your taking the time to be with us today. We've got a bunch of other topics we want to talk about, and so we're going to move on and do that. You're, uh, you're welcome to hang out either as a panelist here with us, or uh, I can demote you to the audience, or you can go off and play with your pillow back there or whatever else you want to do. <laughs> I am super grateful for you guys to have me on. Uh, in order not to be the seventh wheel, um, I think I'll drop here. Thank you very much right. for having me. All right, great. Well, great, great to see you and congratulations again. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. All right, so it has been, it's been two weeks since we've done this. There's been a whole lot of stuff happening. Um, 
And uh, I don't know if anybody wants to uh, particularly suggest anything. I, I mean, to me, the, the kind of the, the second biggest story, well, maybe the first biggest story of the last couple of weeks really was, was the Arizona ethics uh, vote. Um, and I know Victor, uh, Victor, I think, I forget whether you wrote about it or, or I know the ABA Journal covered it, but uh, you want to talk about that a little bit or? Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, Lyle, Lyle Moran, who covers, um, he covers uh, the business of law and technology for us. And yeah. he's actually, you know, he, he likes to write about bar associations and, and state bars and what they're doing and kind of keep abreast on that kind of stuff. So he, he wrote the story for us and uh, it talks about how, you know, I mean, we've been looking at um, these various states who are um, either discussing changing their, their, their ethics rules to allow, um, you know, um, alternative business structures, um, you know, third party uh, ownership of law firms, uh, eliminating fee splitting um, uh, pro prohibitions and the ethics rules and whatnot. And, you know, this has long been kind of like one of the third rails of, of the legal practice. You know, some people just completely go crazy and say like this is the worst thing to happen and, you know, it'll cause all kinds of terrible things to, to occur. And other people are saying, you know, no, this is a good thing to help bridge the access to justice gap and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, make, the, make the system more accessible to people who, who can't afford to, to um, uh, hire lawyers or to um, access the legal justice system in any meaningful way. And so, you know, I mean, Utah, a couple weeks ago, they created this uh, sandbox program that'll last for two years. We talked about it on the show uh, where people can, um, you know, uh, start doing these alternative business structures and, and, and whatnot, and then they'll see how, how the results go and, and go from there. So the Arizona took that one step further and we're like, all right, we're not going to have a sandbox. We're just going to change the ethics rules. And, you know, I mean, I, I guess that, I, I guess, you know, the devil's still going to be in the details. Like they say that like the, um, the programs are going to have to go through some kind of regulatory approval process um, and whatnot. But, and also there's a, there was another um, thing in there about how they, they want to do like a, have like a triple LT program in Arizona as well, where uh, licensed para, paralegals, paraprofessionals can, uh, can, can, can do certain, can, can practice law in certain areas, can perform certain legal duties. Uh, I think they're still kind of working out the contours of that too, I think. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it seems like they, they're definitely, they're going one step further than, than Utah or California have and are just, you know, just change the rules, uh, the ethics rules and are uh, saying, okay, now let's, let's, let's go do it. So yeah, yeah, yeah it's definitely pretty interesting. Yep. Thoughts on that, anybody? Yeah, the going one step further is probably the most interesting thing to me out of all this, because it, especially when we were talking a few weeks ago about Utah, that was all the questions we had is, so what does the application process look like this? What is the extrajudicial uh, regulatory board look like? How exactly does that all happen? The fact that Arizona, I, yes, the devil is in the details again, but just striking down the rule in general, it seems like they are going all in on this in a way that not even Utah did to a certain extent. And Utah went a far way themselves. So the fact that somebody feels A, strongly enough about this, that they feel comfortable just striking that rule in general, and B, it's a new level for any states that may be following. Previously, they very easily could have said, okay, we'll go up to Utah's line, we'll do a very similar board. That's just kind of the standard that has been set. Now Arizona set a new standard. And for somebody like California, like Illinois, who's looking into this, are they gonna go to Utah or are they gonna go all the way to Arizona now? There's questions about how exactly you implement something like this. Um, so it'll be very interesting to watch moving forward, I think. 
Yeah. You know, I think one of the one of the big question marks around all of this is whether it actually ends up serving access to justice, which is the reason for it. I mean, I think there's all sorts of good reasons to allow private investment in, in the delivery of legal services. Uh, but, you know, is that investment going to go to improving the delivery of legal services to rich people and corporations <laughs> uh, where uh, the money is, you know, or is it actually going to end up going to serving uh, generating technology or programs or services that address this this justice gap, and and uh, th I think that what I like about the Utah approach is that that's exactly what they're going to test. They're going to you know, put these programs out there, but collect a lot of data. I didn't see. It's been come to, I don't now that I'd have to go back look back at the uh, Arizona order, but I don't think I saw anything in there about data collection around all of this. Um, but, uh, you know, Utah is going to be very intentional about collecting data about what's working and what's not and what the impact is. So, you know, that, that's going to be interesting. I think the lawyer. Sorry, you go ahead, Victoria. Oh, thanks, Nikki. I think lawyers definitely around the country will be looking closely at what impact these initiatives have um, on lawyers billables in California and Utah, because I heard from sources like that's something lawyers are very concerned about. Will this take away um, work from lawyers? Right. And I know a lot of them, at least in Utah and California, and I spoke to someone in Illinois, they just said like, oh, when it happened in UK, that didn't impact their um, billables and how much um, the living, how uh, lawyers were able to profit in their career. So it'll be interesting to see, like, if you see billables kind of go down in those states because of, like, these new initiatives where you don't have to necessarily go to a lawyer for all legal services now. Yeah. And the pessimist in me thinks that all of these different types of, um, the different ways that are these different states are approaching this, they're all going to end up having the same result, which is, sort of what you'd alluded to. I think at the end of the day, it's just gonna be, where's the money? Where's the money at the bottom of the, um, you know, they're not gonna be looking for access to justice. They're gonna be looking for money, ways to make money um, off of people that would otherwise hire lawyers or who can't hire lawyers. Sure, that's access to justice, but I don't feel like that's where they'd be coming from or at the very top of the, you know, ladder where they're trying to help large corporations and make a lot of money off of that. I, I, I just had, the pessimist in me just thinks that it's, Ultimately, it's not going to help actually help people that need lawyers the most that are getting evicted, that are, um, that are, you know, um, having issues, you know, criminal defense sometimes. There are certain situations where people aren't able to access lawyers for um, traffic issues, for example, or other types of um, civil litigation things that only affect people that don't have a lot of money. Uh, and those are the, those are the ones that I feel like you need the, um, LSU funding, you know, the defunding there is really affecting those. And so I think it's just going to end up affecting, uh, it's going to go where the money is. And at the end of the day, it's not going to help these people that truly need the help. Sure, people need help making wills and stuff, but those are not people that are truly in desperate circumstances more often than not. Yeah. But that's, that's the pessimist. It, I'm more of the glass half empty kind of person. <laughs> it's technically helping the access to justice when Deloitte does a pro bono thing. <laughs> right. I guess. Because that's what this is going to become. Right, right. I, I mean, that's a question. That's a good. That's a great question. Uh, all right. That's that's the extent of our thoughts on that. There was actually a, a comment from or a question or a comment, I guess, uh, from John Broder saying, uh, "Victor, do you think the bars are aware of and looking at how back office structures have been the go-to workaround for these issues for years?" 
why don't they see that and say the cat is already out of the bag? Thoughts on that? I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I think I think it, one of the, I, I think I think it's just there's some because I always go back to what, whenever I think about this issue, I always go. I think the very first ABA annual meeting I I went to. Um, they were talking about this very subject. I think it was right before the Commission of the Future of the Legal Profession, or whatever they were called, um, released their their big report about about um, you know uh, about all this uh, access to justice and whatnot. And I think I was at one of the meetings where they were talking about this, and like uh, one of the state one of the state bar officials for New York got up and was just like, you know, you talk about all of this like it's a business. It's not a business. It's 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 a profession. It's not a business. You know, we're 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 here to 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 perform a noble cause, and you know, you're talking just about bottom line money. And 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 so I think I think there's a lot of that, this idea of just like, well, you know, how can we possibly open this sacred profession up to, you know, these interlopers who only care about business and money? And and I was like, well, but most law firms only care about business and money, and mm -hmm. you know, otherwise they'll go out of business. And um, you know, you don't serve, you don't serve, you, you can't serve the public if you're not, if you can't keep the lights on. And, you know, I, I, th I think, I think there's a little bit of that. And I think there's also, you know, I mean, you see, you see this mentality going on with like everything in the law. I mean, like looking at the bar exam stuff, Joe, you know, you've seen this, like, oh, well, I studied, I studied nine hours a day for three months for the bar exam. Um, you know, and now some, now some kid is going to get the diploma privilege and not have to do what I did. That's not fair. So I, I I think there's a little bit of that too, like you know this idea of just having to protect the guild, and you know whether that whether that is a good thing or a bad thing, you know I think I think we'll we'll you know once we see the results coming from that from, from these programs, we'll have a better idea of like whether or not this is the way to go. Yeah. All right. Um, but you know I I don't know whether there's much to say about it. I mean another big topic over the last two weeks since we've been last met. The reason we didn't meet last week is because of ILTA going on. Uh, the first ever virtual uh, annual conference for, for ILTA. It's its second virtual conference, but it's first uh, annual conference, which is, you know, in, in back in the before times, this was probably the biggest legal technology physical conference in the world. Uh, I, I wrote a column on Above the Law this week saying I kind of thought they did a good job with it. Um, uh, I thought it really was the first time I'd been to a virtual conference um, so far uh, that I felt like there was some of the same energy that I, I felt at a, at a physical conference. And I'm still having a little trouble pinning down exactly why I felt that, uh, but, I, but I did feel that. I, part of it was just the level of participation from people. You know, you go into the, the Zoom programs and the chat was just on fire. It was just crazy. Um, and um, I don't know, did anybody else, see much of it or have any thoughts on it? Probably some of you probably didn't go to any of it. So I think the panels were spectacular and yeah. I definitely noticed the same thing. The Zoom chats were definitely on fire. The, I went to probably three or four panels or so and I saw a triple digit attendees and people really engaged, which is awesome. And I thought the content itself was very well organized and people really cared as well as much as they would have for an on-site conference. Um, so I thought that part was great. The opposite end of the spectrum, and we kind of touched on this, thought that might be the case beforehand, was I did miss just the walking around the exhibit hall and the conversations surrounding that. 
Um, I did have some meetings during Ilticon like I would normally, but it wasn't the number nearly. Um, so I think it did very well for the core Ilta constituency of people in law firms, IT professionals, et cetera. For the legal tech community, um, I'd be curious what the vendors thought of it. Yeah, from I, I mean, I've certainly heard some rumblings that the vendor, some of the vendors were not thrilled, um, I, but no more or less so than you know with other any virtual. I mean, it's, it, these are a real challenge for the vendors, I think, and uh, um, I think getting people to come in to talk to you or whatever whatever you do here with the vendors is is tough. Um, so I think I think that's I think somebody's has somebody's yet to reinvent how vendors uh, you know participate in these programs or what yeah. the right way for them to participate is. I think it's a challenge. It's yeah. definitely a challenge. Yeah. There's a, there's a actually a question related to this. Uh, what should state bars do to get members to participate on chat in webinars and virtual conventions? We're a reticent conservative group. Any thoughts on that? We don't have answers. We just have questions. <laughs> We're the journalists. That's what we do. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I don't know. It's, I mean, the I, I thought really what was partly was kind of interesting about this was the chat wasn't even just about the programs, even though the programs were really good. There was just this sort of chatter going on in the chat of, you know, hey, Sally, I haven't seen you for a while. And, you know, I'm here representing North Carolina, and, you know, just that kind of stuff going on. Uh, that was kind of interesting, but. I, oh, I wonder if. Oh, go ahead, Nikki. Well, I was going to say, I just wonder if I. Um, if, like the College of Law Practice Management, for example, ILTACON, you know, ILTA is an organization that then holds yep. a conference rather yep. than a conference that people just go to to conduct business at. And so I wonder if you had alluded to that in your um, yeah. blog post, but I wonder if that has a lot to do with it. And that may be why, although people join bar associations, they, there's not that same yep. sense of camaraderie as there probably is within the sections and stuff, but not yeah. overall. Right. So I wonder yep. if that is part of the issue or difficulty there. Yeah, no, I think that's part of it. I think that's, that's part of it. Um, all right, uh, what else do we want to talk about this week? <laughs> we had a, a bunch of stuff. We had, uh, uh, Vic, we have Victoria instead of Joe maybe has a bar exam story. Yes, your weekly bar exam story. I'm here to deliver that. <laughs> <laughs> but the um, association, but a report was released by the association for software testing, I got it right in front of me. Association for mm -hmm. Software Testing, where they looked into ExamSoft because that's pretty much the software that's going to be used for all these online bar exams. And they had a lot of concerns um, based on just like the capacity that the, um, will ExamSoft be able to um, be able to fit all the capacity of having so many thousands of um, bar takers take clicking onto their program at one time and then it could potentially lead to some people being logged off or not being able to access their exam and also some security questions with um, the software that it may cause some data to be lost on uh, exam takers uh, 
personal computers, and also the question of could their AI biometric detecting software lead to any racial disparity where they aren't able to um, correctly detect people of color in their software. Um, they talked to the um, my colleague at law.com, Karen Sloan, she talked, I think she spoke to some um, bar associations or they just said, hey, we're looking into this to see, you know, to make sure that we do our tests are able to launch and everything on October 5th and 6th. And it'll kind of be interesting, will any of these states just say, hey, this software might not be ready for prime time. Let's maybe think of another initiative or another way to do this. Or maybe do, I know some states have said they'll have like an open book exam, uh, bar exam. It'll just be interesting. Will they kind of take heed to apparently these third party um, saying that um, themself might not be the way to go when it comes to online bar exams. So as as the resident editor of Above the Bar Exam, as I've now <laughs> renamed my website, uh, so early, this is entirely uh, a problem. And it's a problem largely of ExamSoft's own making, right? Like ExamSoft put aside, maybe they really got hacked, who knows. Uh, but bad things happened when they tried to do this with the very small sample of Michigan folks. And their response to it was, we were victims of a sophisticated cyber attack. And you know what that said to every examinee? People are apparently trying to destroy this, then how is this gonna be ever safe again? Uh, which means that every interaction that people have with this software is through the lens of it's going to be a security risk. We have people who, um, the downloading of the ExamSoft software triggered their Google Chrome password, uh, password manager alert, and they're freaking out that ExamSoft stole their password, which isn't probably what happened. Uh, it's possible, but it's not probably what happened. What probably happened was a natural, uh, the act of downloading triggered this. But that's the problem. They have freaked everyone out by saying that they're under attack. And now, we, especially since we know, uh, as this study that Victoria's talking about it points out, that there are serious problems with the platform, it's, everyone's just uh, freaked out and states are largely not caring about it, which is truly disturbing. Uh, Illinois had a petition this week to just ask, please, please let's run a test run. Can we run a test run before it happens just to see if it can work with everybody in there? And in less than 48 hours, a curt one sentence or so uh, order came out saying deny. Uh, there's, it, it's, it's a real problem. Uh, and it's just, it, obviously I think it deserves more attention because I'm bar exam crazy guy at this point, but yeah. <laughs> no, I think you're right though. Like when I was talking with Karen Sloan and her editor, I think one of them used the analogy of this has fire festival potential <laughs> where the only people who actually say, yeah, we're going to be okay is ExamSoft themselves, but nobody's really doing anything until we get to a critical mass and the event is here and what's going to happen? Extegrity, the other, one of the other players in this field, well, ILG, there are three players. ILG has already um, three strikes and they're out, basically, between Indiana, Nevada, and Florida. So they're done. And then Extegrity uh, looked at it and went, well, this is crazy, folks. You can't do this. Only ExamSoft thinks this is possible. And hey, you know, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't see the problem with just letting people take take a take a book with like do the open book thing because it's like you know i mean if you i mean if you've taken the bar exam before it's 200 multiple choice questions you know you're you're on it's like six hours to do it you can't look up every single 
every single question. If you do, you're never, you're not going to get close to finishing. So you still have to know the stuff. Like you still have to study, you still have to put in the time. You're not going to be able to get there and just start looking things up. I mean, so, you know, just, 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 yeah, why not? I mean, if anything, probably boost scores by a little bit, but I, I don't see why that would make a big difference. Yeah. The actual practice of law is an open book exam. Exactly. Like right. the actual practice. Nobody says, please answer. Greta Van Susteren randomly came up as like the big anti-bar exam advocate this week. Uh, like as she points out correctly, I have never been asked to deliver legal advice <laughs> locked in a closet. Like why would you? It's dumb. Yeah, it, in a closet. <laughs> it's honestly the same thing when my wife was taking her med school board exams. It's you need to know all of these different things about anatomy okay, well, that's cool, but there's 10,000 medical pieces of software that are going to be in the room with you that I can look up 10 times easier than it is trying to re like remember random muscle in the wrist. Uh, it's the same thing with law. It's you're going to have your research there. You're going to have people to ask there in most cases. You're not going to be alone. So I don't think it's the worst thing in the world as long as you're able to, kind of to Victor's point, know what to reference, do it quickly, and memorize what is important, I think that trains you perhaps even better to be a lawyer in the actual field. I'm sure it's they all make sense. So this isn't supposed to be about making sense. This is supposed to be making everyone else go through what we went through. It's a hazing ritual. It's, you know, and it's a bunch of people at the top going, no, 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 I didn't get a book. They can't get books. I mean, they got to step outside their, their con the confines of their concept of what it's supposed to be. And I don't know if they're going to be able to do that. But. Yeah. It's a death cult. It, it's a death cult. They, like, uh, the sacrifice needs to be made to Carousel or whatever reference you want to use. I chose Logan's Run, which outdates pretty much everybody. But the, the point is, whatever it is, they're going, to, uh, they're going to force you to do it. It's ridiculous. I'm surprised, Joe, you haven't used this, this uh, discussion to plug your podcast, because what this is all about is thinking like a lawyer, right? It sure is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, what else? Do, uh, uh, let's see. Zach, you, you had... Uh... Uh, yeah, it's just a small little story, but I thought it was kind of fun that um, M&T Bank rolled out a legal tech project within the past week or two. Um, it's a software designed particularly for small and medium-sized attorneys to get their finances in order and, of course, be able to do that through the bank with integration with uh, M&T Bank's tools. Of course, it's a revenue-generating thing for them, trying to get yeah. people to come to their bank. But I thought it was kind of interesting that even, I mean, we've talked for years about large corporations that aren't legal specific making legal specific tools a lot of times we thought of that as tech companies be it microsoft or oracle or what have you but there are so many different other corporations that plug into the legal world like banks like finance um, that i just thought it was kind of interesting to see one of them focus on this particular market with a tech tool it is interesting it's an, it's focused on the trust accounts right and Yes, uh, I believe. Yeah. So I need yeah. to look at the article again. <laughs> that's that's what I read. Yeah, yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, I mean, and, do you think we can see more of that going forward? 
I mean, if the market's there and lawyers have the money to pay in most cases, I would think so. Um, I think a lot of the barrier is just awareness of what lawyers need as much as anything else. So I know when Frank reached out to M&T Bank, that was a lot of what they discussed is, so why this particular market? What is interesting about lawyers and their needs? And the person within M&T Bank who developed this tool said, yeah, I mean, honestly, it was just a bunch of lawyers coming up to us and saying, this sucks, how can we fix it? And it got to a critical mass of that exact question where they said, you know, there's the ROI for us internally to build something like this. And we think it might benefit not only our current customers, but future. Um, so it's just a matter of lawyers recognizing what they need and those outside corporations saying, yeah, we can do that. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to see it. I mean, it's a, it, uh, Trust account management is a, is a complicated thing. And a lot of law firms, of course, have multiple trust accounts and uh, their IOLTA accounts and uh, whatever else. So uh, it, it's an it's, uh, area that's ripe for, uh, for uh, screwing up royally. And uh, the consequences are, are bad when they do. Um, Nikki, you said you had something, but I didn't have it. So I wasn't sure what you, did you have a story? It was, um... <laughs> it was in a different email thread, um, the one where we all said whether we were in or out for the week. But uh, <laughs> it, uh, what caught my eye was an article, I believe it was from the ABA Journal, but I could be wrong, about um, some FBI records that had just been released. I can't recall the context in which they were released, but that indicated that in about 2008, four of the largest law firms' websites were spoofed as part of um, an attempt to get in the middle of the M&A transaction. So they, someone went onto a Wikipedia pages and changed the links um, to the law firms there. So the traffic would end up going to these spoofed sites that look just like their sites, except that the links on those sites led to, you know, email addresses led to somewhere else. But so it was essentially someone trying to get, in, in 2008, trying to get in on, um, uh, you know, spoofing websites and getting in the middle of these transactions. And since then, as we all know, we have seen far more, I mean, that's a pretty unique way of going about it, but far more sophisticated attempts to get in the middle of these transactions by spoofing email addresses. And so I just thought it was interesting to see that, um, that this has, you know, sort of the infancies of that beginning to occur online and then how far we've come and then how far we haven't come because of lawyers' tech confidence and everyone's just sort of starting to become aware that this may even be an issue, but it's been going on for that long and so many lawyers have been defrauded um, in large firms and small firms alike. And it's just was to me an example of why tech competence is so important and why it should have been important more than a decade ago. And it's still sort of an argument, uh, tough fight to make that argument now. A lot of lawyers aren't necessarily on board with us on that, so. Yeah. All right, I mean, there were also, you know, there was a whole bunch of, uh, ILTA related press releases over the last couple of weeks. A um, couple of, uh, you know, interesting, I guess, acquisitions. There was the Latera acquisition of Allegory Law, Allegory Law. There was iManage closing folders. Uh, Big Hand basically got sold to a different uh, uh, investment uh, firm. Um, and uh, there was the whole uh, net documents release around its whole kind of new Work and work inspired messaging and and products uh, 
that uh, I don't know. Did anybody have any, have any, any thoughts on any of that stuff or is that for another day? It could be for another day, but I, I yeah. did find the Latera one pretty interesting because they've been pretty litigation focused and not only are they, um, or they've been pretty contract focused and now they're going to more litigation focused with bringing allegory in there, but also the fact that they hired Alma off, uh, back in April and it's her company and now right. her company is joining her in Latera. Um, it seemed not exactly a coincidence. Um, so I, I just thought that was kind of interesting how that all went down as well. Yeah. Although uh, Avanish said, uh, the CEO at Latera told me that Alma was, you know, in no way involved uh, in, in the deal, completely arm's length. As a matter of fact, she's been out on maternity leave for, for part of this time. But uh, um, so, you know, whether that, whether one led to the other or not, it's hard to say. Uh, I mean, it, it at least suggests that that's where their thinking was, right? Yeah. Like, it, no, no untowardness. Like, their their thinking was they wanted that kind of uh, that kind of capacity, and uh, then they went and got it. Yeah. Well, they had already. I mean, they had litigation related products before, and they had acquired uh, Best Authority back in what the spring or something. Um, so, it, you know, it wasn't an area that was foreign to them. Um, and uh, you know, and it makes sense. I mean, if you've if you've got uh, if you've got the a lot, you know, a lot of the transactional side workflow uh, wrapped up, then that's a logical direction to expand into. So, all right. Well, I uh, hope everybody has a great Labor Day weekend, and uh, we will be back here. And cheers. <laughs> Cheers, Zach. And we will be back here next Friday at 3 o'clock Eastern time with another edition of our Legal Tech Week Roundtable. Thanks to everybody and thanks to everybody for listening. <laughs>